Now, I want to tell you, we can uh, read through the Gospels, and as we have, especially in the Gospel of John, we've seen that there are numerous times that, that Jesus' teaching seems to be filled with you know, almost counterintuitive truths. He says things that don't seem to fit together. They seem you know, almost opposite. Even in this passage, we're going to see down in verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense. You know, how does loving your life cause you to lose it? How does hating your life cause you to find it? Or one of the best known passages in the Gospel of John is when Jesus was teaching Nicodemus and he said, you must be born again. And again, it doesn't make sense. And Nicodemus said it at the time. You know, how is it possible that a grown man couldn't be born again? And, and he said this repeatedly, and, and, but sometimes even goes beyond that. They're not just ideas that seem to be contradictory, but they're ideas that almost seem to be opposite. They seem to be, uh, you know, the total opposite, that there's no way to fit them together. Now, we can look at that and say, well, that happens in everyday life, and, and, and a lot of times it does, but, but usually kind of by accident. I mean, I even thought about this, and I thought, you know, you could go out into the, into the culture, and you can see things like advertisements, and you see people putting together words or thoughts that don't seem to fit together, but you kind of know what they were trying to say. For example, even a, a sign at a McDonald's, you know, parking for drive-through service only. Now, you know, now you look at that and you say, I think I know what they're trying to say, but if you're drive-through, then why do you have parking? You know, just, it doesn't, it doesn't go together. Or, or another example is this. You know, someone advertising clean dirt. Now, now I'm thinking, now isn't the opposite of clean dirty? And so how do you have clean dirt? Those ideas don't go together. Or another example, somebody advertising antique tables made daily. Now I'm, I'm thinking of it and saying, now wait a second, isn't part of what defines something as antique is that it's old? And so how do you make new antiques every day? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Or, or here's one, I, I don't know if we would say it's a respected jeweler, but we're genuine fake watches. And, and you're, now again, the, the, by definition, genuine means it's not fake. So how do you have genuine fake? And now I look at that and I think that in all those cases, you know, people probably weren't intentionally trying to be contradictory. They were trying to say something. We might know what they're trying to say. And, and they put it together. They didn't try to be so confusing. But what's interesting is when we look at Jesus, these weren't mistakes. I think he in very intentionally at times put together words that didn't belong at all, that were opposite, and, and he did it to try to get our attention. And we're going to see what he does this morning as we see in verse 23. What does he say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he talks about this idea that, okay, I'm about to be glorified. And we're thinking, okay, how is he about to be glorified? And what he does is then he starts talking about the cross. He starts talking about dying on the cross. And we sit, sit there and say, well, wait a second, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit together. Now, as we dive into this, I want to dive into it by going all the way back to, you know, the, not only the beginning, but we have to see a little bit before the beginning. You see, if you were here last week, you saw that last week we, start, we studied verses 1 through 11 or chapter 12, and, and now you're saying, well, we're jumping up to chapter 20 or verse 20, and what happened to verses you know, 12 through 19? Well, that's the passage. It's often known as the you know, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, where Jesus was celebrated as he came into Jerusalem. But we talked about that actually on Palm Sunday. We dealt with it out of order. But we need to bring it up here because everything that's happening here today is in response to that. 
See, what happens, again, we see in verse 20 that there's people who came to see Jesus. They came, you know, there's these seekers. Now, there are amongst those who came to worship at the feast, some Greeks. They came to Philip, who were from Bethesda and Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus. And the request is really simple. Now, I want to tell you, I, I will admit, when I read this at first, you know, I'm kind of, it was somewhat confusing. You know, what does it, this whole thing about there were Greeks that came to see Jesus and they asked this, and what does this have to do with the rest of the passage? It didn't seem to fit. And um, especially when you look at the conversation that follows, because Jesus seems to go on a totally different, different track. And it didn't make sense until you really think through the situation and then it becomes clear. You know, we read it and we've just got to break it down a little bit. Now, now this is, in a sense, really simple. Think about it here. What does he say? There were some Greeks who came to see Jesus. They came to worship at the feast. The feast is the Passover. Now, when you think about this, the Greeks, they're referring to Gentile converts, people that were Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. And we know they had converted to Judaism because they've come to worship at the feast. They've come to the Passover. And not only that, but they're not just called Gentiles, they're called Greeks, which tell us that they were Greek-speaking. So they were people that didn't live in the, in, the, in the area around Israel. They were from the other parts of the world. So they're Gentile converts that live somewhere other than in a greater Israel area who've now come for the Passover festival. Now, what that means, if you think about it, is it means that when they've come now to Jerusalem for Passover, they know almost nothing about Jesus. They don't live there. They haven't lived there. They haven't heard about his ministry. They haven't seen his ministry. They come in for Passover, and the only thing that they know is what they've seen. And what have they seen? They've seen the triumphal entry. They come in, and here they come in, and suddenly there's this incredible scene. Now look back, if you, if you have your Bibles, look back a couple of verses beforehand. And we see this scene in John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet them, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And what we know is that these palm branches were symbols from the Maccabean Wars. They were symbols of Jewish military victory. And the people are crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And they're waving these branches, in a sense, welcoming Jesus as a conquering king. It's a military parade. It literally is a parade that you would give a conquering king after a victory, welcoming him in to his, to his, his capital. And it, we see this being played out even in the next verse. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And he's saying, okay, I'm coming as the king. But yet, he seemingly gets something wrong here. Because he intentionally does, because you would expect the conquering king to come in on this great war horse and coming in in power. And until we're told that he comes in the foal of a donkey, a donkey's colt, he comes in in a baby donkey. Where literally it's, it's so low that he could, he could almost walk on it while he's trying to ride it. And you're looking at that and you're saying, no, wait, you're supposed to be this great military you know, king that is coming in power, and, and he's coming in the humility of riding on this little colt, this little donkey. And, and people are sitting there saying, okay, no, we're excited, but Jesus, you kind of got this wrong. You know, we want you in power. And what Jesus was saying is, yes, I've come to be the king, but not the king that you are expecting, not the king that, you're, that you want. 
Yes, you were looking for a Messiah that would bring political salvation, and I want you to know that I am the Messiah, but the salvation that you need isn't from Rome, it's from your own sin, it's from Satan, it's from sin and death. And people were missing this point. And what we've got to realize is that there's a problem here that was true then, it's true now, and, and that is that when we come to Jesus, often we come looking for the Jesus that we desire or that we expect. See, the majority of the people of Israel wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah of their own choosing. They saw their problems not as their own sin, not as they're separated from God, but they saw their, their, their problem as political power. You know, we need power. We need, you know, we need victory. We need to get rid of the Romans. We want self-control. And because they were so fixated on the kind of salvation that they demanded, they totally missed the salvation that Jesus actually brought and offered. And ultimately, when they understand what he was offering, they rejected him because he was not the Messiah that they desired or expected. And the fact is, we can do the same thing as well. That's what was true here for these Gentiles that are being described. What we've got to realize is that they, again, were converts to Judaism. They didn't live in Israel. The only thing that they knew about Jesus is what they saw in this triumphal entry. And they were drawn to the glory of the entry. That's why they're going to see Jesus. They're looking at this and they're saying, you know, we don't really know this, but, you know, but boy, you know, everybody's celebrating this and who's this guy and we want to see him because, because if he's the political king, you know, we want, to, we want to check out about him. And so they were attracted to the glory of a possible king. Now I want you to see again, what was the request? We wish to see Jesus. Now the key question for them and for us is this, do we want to see the Jesus we expect that we desire, or do we want to see the Jesus that is? Because what we're going to see in Jesus' response is that his answer to all who seek him is that the only way to see Jesus is to see him for who he is. See, we must see him for who he is. Now look at again uh, at the request, verse 20. Now amongst those who were, went up to uh, worship at the feast were some Greeks so these came to Philip, who were from Bethesda and Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip told Andrew, and Andrew told Philip, or Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now that's a pretty straightforward question. We read this. These people, they come and they say, you know, we want to see Jesus. And they go to Jesus. Jesus, we want to see you. Now look at his answer. Remember the question, these people want to see you. In his response, verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, where's the answer to the question? It, it doesn't seem to answer it at all. Now, we've seen this throughout the whole Gospel of John. Jesus does this all the time. People ask him a question, and he gives an answer that seems to be totally disconnected. You know, very direct, and it's kind of like he gives this answer. And Jesus, were you listening? Did you hear what we asked? Um, now, again, now we may do this. We understand sometimes we do this. I, I, I have to admit, I think sometimes as men we do this. Uh, when our, our wives will ask us a very direct question and, you know, we'll come home and we're like, well, I asked you to do this on the way home, pick this up, and did you do that? And, and we have this moment of terror and then we're like, hey, you look really nice today. Is that a new dress? It's kind of like, how do I switch the subject? What, do, what would we rather talk about? And, and I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think he's trying to switch the subject. Uh, or there are times, you know, you might look at that and we've kind of joked, it's you know, Jesus almost seems at times like he's got ADD. You know, it's kind of like, and which I personally relate to. You know, somebody asked me a question, and, and, and by the time they finish the question, I've gone on to a different answer. And so I'm kind of like saying, what were you asking, Ken? Well, let's talk about this. And, uh, 
And again, I don't think that's the case here. And I've got to say, sometimes there might even be some of us, not that I would ever do this, but somebody with ADD that can use ADD as an excuse to change the subject, especially with your wife, so that you somehow, you know, you know, I asked you about this, oh, what was that? Oh, my mind went, oh, well, let's talk about how nice you look. You know, it's just kind of, now again, we can joke about that, and we do that, but that's not what Jesus is doing. But yet we've got to acknowledge that there, there is no, seemingly no response. I mean, they ask him, Jesus, these people want to come and see you, and his response is, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, how in the world, it, the, what we've got to realize is that that is a response. And when he seems to do this, he's actually not avoiding it. He's not changing the subject. What he's doing is every time, you say, we're asking a question, and he's coming back and saying, you're really asking the wrong question. Here, let me, let me say this, because it's going to totally change it's going to change the question. You see, here's what's happening. They're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, we see the glory of your, of your entry. We want to see you. We want to see your glory. We want to see you as the king. And he comes back and he says, yeah, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Yes, if you want to see me, let's talk about it. But let's talk about the way I'm going to be glorified. It's not coming in and being, you know, being crowned as the king in Jerusalem. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He says, okay, you want to see me? Well, the only way to see me is to look for me in the glory of, of what, who I really am, of what I've come to do. If you're coming to see me and see the glory of a king, you'll never see me. But if you come and you see that my glory is in my death, then you're going to see me. You see, we're never really told if Jesus even met with these, with these people. But, it's, but that's not even the issue. It's not whether he said yes or no. He's coming and saying, whoever comes to see me, there are many people who come to see me, but if you look for me in whom you hope for or expect, if you look for me in the, in my, in the glory of you know, my accomplishments and what I can do for you, you will never see me. The only way for you to see me is to see me as one who is glorified in my death. Now, what we've got to look at that and saying that Jesus is teaching this principle that is throughout this, this whole passage and saying his glory is revealed in his death on the cross. That is not what people were looking for. It's, it's in something very, very different. People were looking for the Messiah that would be the political leader, that would be victorious. And he said, no. Or, or people will take Jesus, parts of Jesus' ministry and, well, he's a great teacher and, and, I, and I like what he says. And, and he says, no, if you do not see me for who I am specifically in my death on the cross, you will never see me. The true nature of who he is and what he came to do is revealed in the cross. His glory is revealed in the cross. This is a, not a popular message to this day. There are churches that will go out and are taking old hymns, and they're saying, well, we want to take the blood out because that might be offensive to people, and we want to, you know, we don't want to talk about the cross, and we don't, no, the fact is it is an offensive message. It was then, it is to this day, but until we embrace that message, we will never truly see Jesus Christ. His response in verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's teaching a spiritual principle a principle that, that a truth of, of spiritual truth that only by death comes life. Now, again, remember that Jesus' response is in, re, is, is in response to what they had witnessed about his entrance into Jerusalem. 
you know, they're expecting this conquering king. And he says, no, yes, I've come to be glorified, but my glory is in the cross. You see, they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you kind of got it right, but let's get rid of the donkey. Let's put you on the war horse. You know, let's, let's make sure that you've got the right glory. And Jesus is saying, no, the donkey is the thing that actually points to the right glory. The right glory is not in the military strength. It's not in victory. The right glory is in humility, not only riding on a donkey, but ultimately dying and dying on a cross. He stated this principle, only by death comes life. And then he uses this, an illustration of a, of a grain of wheat. I mean, again, many of us may know this from, you know, from, you know, some of us may have gone out, we had intends to plant a garden this summer. You know, we, we sat there and we went out and bought a bunch of seeds and whether it's flowers or whether it's a you know, um, vegetable garden and you plant, you know, got the seeds and then you put them in the drawer. Now, the fact is, is that if they're still in the drawer, you didn't have the flowers and you're not, you know, you're not eating the tomatoes and the corn. I mean, the, the seeds are still in the drawer. They haven't blossomed. The only way for those seeds to become alive, in a sense, is to bury them, to, in a sense, bury them in death. And only when they're buried in death, in a sense, do they then come alive and sprout. And it's not only they come alive, but they multiply. You know, so you have a single grain of wheat that becomes a whole stock. You have a single grain of you know, a piece of corn that becomes a whole stock of, of multiple pieces of corn. There's growth and there's reproduction. And this is the paradox that Jesus is teaching. And he says, okay, you know, that, that it's, a, it's a principle that he applies to himself. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he's saying, this is the truth that I'm teaching about my glory. Is my glory is that I've come to die. That, I've, that I'm going to be glorified in being, in, in being put to death and being put in the ground and being buried. Unless I go to Calvary and unless I die, I will remain alone. But it's only by death that the, that the glory of the gospel be realized and that many will come with me into heaven. And it's an incredible truth. The glory that is accomplished through his death, and it is only through the death of Jesus Christ that any of us can be forgiven. It is only by what he has accomplished that we can ever bear the fruit of a relationship with God. Uh, Peter says this, 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And so this incredible idea, this something glorious, that Jesus Christ died. That's what he came for. That's where, that's where glory is revealed in who he is and what he did. And the incredible thing is, while it's glorious, it's also at the same time horrific. And even in this passage, we see that. We see that Jesus saying, I'm going to be glorified. And then he turns around and he says, but this is horrific. Understand, look at this. Look at um, in verse 30, 23. The hour son, uh, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then we go on verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now, why is he troubled? Because he knows what he's about to do. He knows that this, this death on the cross, it's going to accomplish something glorious, but through a path that is something horrific. Again, if you understand the cross, the cross never would have been considered a sign of glory by anybody in that time. You know, we talk about it was a sign of execution. It was, but it was beyond that. It was a sign of torture. 
It was something that the, that the Romans used to publicly torture over days, somebody ultimately leading in the person's death and saying, this is what happens to people that does this crime, and so we want to scare you away from doing that crime. It was the most horrific form of death ever devised. And so here you have Jesus saying, yes, there's going to be glory here, but there's torture, there's horror. I realize that what's about to come, and it's horrific. And if you understand what the gospel teaches, the horror, we could sit there and talk about, you know, the horror of what was happening on the cross, and it was. When you talk about, you know, the whipping, and it literally is, you know, back torn to shreds. When you hear about being hanging on the cross and being unable to breathe and how torturous it was, it was terrible. But you know, the greatest moment of agony on the cross, there was one moment that, that we hear as is described in the Gospels, Jesus crying out in pain and agony. And it wasn't when they hit him with a whip. It wasn't when they put the nails into his hand. It wasn't when they dropped the, the cross into the hole and probably just, you know, just jointed his arms. It wasn't when he was hanging there in, in agony for hours. The greatest moment of agony is when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because what we've got to realize is that the cross was just a symbol of something deeper. That if you want to understand the, the true agony that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross, don't just go to the physical description of how bad it was. Understand that ultimately it was a punishment for our sins. That at the cross, Jesus Christ took our sins upon himself. He not only took our sins, but he took the wrath of God. So at that moment on the cross, God the Father literally turned his back on the Son. He poured his wrath, his anger for sins upon Jesus. And in agony, Jesus cried out, I, can't, I can handle everything that's on the cross, but I can't handle this. And so much so that if you understand, Luke describes how Jesus died. It says that they put a, a spear into his side after he died and blood and water came out. Medically, we now know that his heart literally burst inside of him. There was such pain, such torture, the human body was unable to handle it, and his heart exploded because he took the wrath of God for our sins. Now, what an incredible truth. Now, you might look at that and you say, but okay, but that's horrific. In fact, it was so horrific, if you, that whole part where it talks about the Father speaking, the whole idea was it was so horrific, no one could see it as glorious. And so the God, Jesus called out for the Father, and the Father literally spoke from heaven saying, yeah, no, this is, this is glorious, this is good. It's going to seem terrible, but this is the plan. And so we sit there and say, if it was that bad, then how is it glorious? How is Jesus possibly glorified by this? And there we've got to understand the glory of his death. And it's, the key is not in how he died, it's in what his death accomplished. If you have your Bibles, go to verse 31. Look what it says. Now, this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of, uh, of this world be cast out. And when I say I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. I want you to notice when it says, now this is the judgment of the world. He's talking about his death. And he, in the midst of this, says, now this is the judgment of the world. I've got to sit there and say, well, wait a second. I, I thought the judgment is at the end of time. I thought that's, you know, when God closes history, there's, there's a judgment. He brings us everybody before him. And, and yet Jesus is saying, no, this is the judgment. How in the world is this the judgment? How is the cross the judgment? Yeah, there is a judgment day coming. There's a, especially for those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is that for those who believe in me, the judgment is now. It's at the cross. 
This is the judgment. In John chapter 5, Jesus said the same idea. Look what he said in John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He doesn't come into judgment. Why? Because this is the judgment. The judgment is at the cross. And he's saying they won't come at a cross. Why? Because in Christ, at the cross, they have already been judged. Judgment has been done. The sentence has been, you know, God is, we stood before God and the sentence has been pronounced. You are guilty. And not only is the sentence pronounced, but the punishment has been given, death. But the sentence was pronounced and judgment was given not to me, but in Jesus Christ who took those things upon himself that my sin is already condemned, it is already punished, it is over, and because, it is, because judgment has happened, I'm not going to go through it again. That, that the fact is we've already passed from a condemned state of death into the justified state of eternal life because judgment has happened at the cross. Praise God, that is glorious. When it talks about the fact that he is about to be glorified, that is glorious. What a glorious message. And as horrific as the cross was, what it accomplished was incredibly glorious. The death of Jesus Christ is the dividing line between the condemned and the vindicated. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is united to Jesus, is punished in Jesus. The judgment is over. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are united with him in his death, and he has taken upon himself your sin and his judgment so that now his death is your death, his condemnation is your condemnation. And because we have already been condemned, we have been forgiven, and now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. But on the other hand, if you reject Jesus Christ, if you never trust him, if you hear this message and you reject his offer of love and forgiveness, and I wanna tell you that that offer is being made today. And so you're hearing that offer, and if you don't have this relationship with Christ, it's a question of will you receive it or accept it? And if you reject it, and if you reject him until your death, then the judgment will come. Because your sins were never transferred to Jesus Christ. He has not paid for your sin. He has not taken your wrath. So the question is, have you received him? Now, now again, let's go back to the initial request. What did they say? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And my friends, what we've got to realize is that Jesus is teaching us the only way to see Jesus is to see the Jesus whose glory is the cross. If we come to Jesus and we're looking for the glory of his victory or his greatness as a teacher, we will never see Jesus Christ. See, again, what was Jesus' response? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of, 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 of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, here's what I want you to realize. When we said this, we said at first, that this is a spiritual principle. It's a spiritual truth. Now, the idea of a principle is it's something that always is true. And we saw that Jesus took this principle and he at first applied it to himself. And he said, because it's true, it is only if I die, if I'm buried, then I will bear fruit. But it's a spiritual truth that applies not only to himself, but also to those who follow him. And that's where he turns in this passage. You see, what we've got to realize, it's a spiritual truth for all who would follow him. See, it's impossible to see Jesus unless we see him through the cross. If you see him primarily as a victorious king, 
It will change the way that you not only see him, but the way you approach him. So people that talk about him being victorious and he's going to give you stuff and he's going to give you health and wealth, we go to him and we want to identify with him and his victory and his blessings and his, and his goodness. Or you have other people that will come to him and say, well, he's a great teacher and I, and I really want to embrace his teaching. And so I want to identify with his teaching. So I want to find out what, what did he say and how do I live that out? And, and now it's about good works. But if we came to understand that he, or if we understand that he came to die on the cross for our sins and his glory is revealed most of all through his death, then we understand that the only way to follow him is not only to see his glory on the cross, but to follow him there. It changes what it means to accept him, that this principle is true for those who follow him. Only through death do we discover life. Because right after he says this principle, applying it to himself in verse 24, he comes to verse 25 and look what he says. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Friends, he begins with this truth about himself, and then he looks and he says, okay, it applies to all that would follow me as well. Even last week, we saw, it's very much the same idea as we saw last week. We looked at Mary and, Ju and Judas and the contrast, and what was it? You had Judas is coming to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you because I, I think you're the means to getting stuff, to wealth and power. And, and Mary said, no, I realize that you're not a means to some greater end. You are the greater end, and so I'm going to pour out what is valuable to me because it's how I discover what, what is of ultimate significance. You see, the principle of true discipleship has never changed, and the principle is that life comes through death. We've got to realize that he calls us, how do, how do we find this life? By dying to ourselves. By dying to ourselves. And what does it mean to die to ourselves? It means that we look at what we would naturally value in life, our own wisdom, our own ideas, our own desires, and say, these are, these are what I want. This is, if I'm my own God, this is, this is the direction I'm going to go. And, and that's wrong. I'm not God. And so I want to die to myself. I want to die to those natural desires. I want to say, God, I, I admit to you that they're wrong and I give you the right to change them. I, I want you to transform me. And then if I die to myself, then what happens? Then I discover life. Now, here's something I want you to notice. There's a motivation in here that Sometimes we can look at this and say, well, we need to divide ourselves. It's, you know, that Christ died for us and it's just our obligation. It's our duty. And well, that's true, but it's more than that. See, what does it say? Why do we die to ourselves? Because if we die to ourselves, we discover life. Why did Jesus die? Because he understood that if he died, that he would be planted and he would find life and he would, you know, he, he would find fruitfulness. See, it's dying to our old self. Why? It's not just to lose it. Well, just, you know, lose everything and just fall. No, it's, that's how we discover life. In fact, let me go to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, it tells us this builds on the same idea that Jesus Christ is our example. We see what he has done, and we follow him in the example. Look what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Why did Jesus persevere? Why is it that when he looked at the, you know, and he said, you know, Father, take this cup away from me. Why is it that he saw the whore and he said, I'm going to persevere even through the whore? What does it say? For the joy that was set before him. That he realized and saw the horror, but at the same time, he saw the glory. And he said, there is something that is going to be accomplished by this that is so wonderful that I'm willing to go through the horror of being judged, of being rejected by the Father because of what it accomplishes and the salvation of, of, of millions of followers and the relationship that I'd have with him. Now, I want you to realize that it says, now we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter, and we are to follow him. And so we are to realize that the principle is that by death we discover life. And Jesus said, okay, that's the example. Do it the way that I did it. And how did he do it? For the joy that was set before him. You know why we do it, my friends? Because we realize that if I hold on to this life that I think that is so wonderful, these desires that I think that will satisfy me, the promises of the world, if I love my life, I'm going to lose it. It's going to come back empty. But if I lay down my life, if I, if I hate it and I say, God, I agree with it's wrong, Father, change my desires, change my heart, I want to follow you, then I find it. And so why do I lay it down? Because there's a joy that is set before me. Because I'm so longing for this relationship with God where I know that I will, it's not that God will give me stuff or the things of the world, it's where I will find the things that are deeper, that I find joy and I find meaning and I find purpose and I find significance and I find joy that carries me even through the struggles with cancer, even through the struggles of loss, even through the brokenness of life. My friends, I've got to realize that even when we look at this, and what does it say? Whoever, go back to verse 25 of John. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. You know what it's saying here? That's not only how we come to Christ. For some, it's first of all saying, God, I agree with you and I ask you to forgive me. But for us who are believers, this is a message we continually need to preach to ourselves. You know why? Because there are times that I say, God, I agree with you. I ask you to forgive me. And then there are things in my life that I start to make too central and I hold on and, and God says, no, I want you to surrender that. Are you willing to surrender that? Are you willing to, are you willing to die to that? Are you willing to let me change that desire? Are you willing to, to agree with me that it's sinful? And let me change you from the inside out. And okay, God, and we struggle. And it's hard to do. Or we, we have parts in our life that, man, I swore on God and then I started following the promises of the world and my friends, this isn't a one-time thing. For some, it starts with a one-time, it's our first uh, surrender to Jesus Christ. But it's something that we do the rest of our lives. And so the question isn't just have you done this at one point in time. For those who follow, them, follow him, that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, are you following him in all areas of your life? Is there something that he's calling you today to say, no, I want you to you're trying to hold on to something and you're losing your life. And I want you to, to see it the way that I see it, to hate that, to let it go. And let me give you life. Let me change your lives. Why? Because if you look at verse 26, what does it say? Whoever, anyone who serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How do we serve him? By following him. Where do we follow him? Where he goes into the spiritual principle that only by death do we discover life. And so God calls us to death, to surrender, to surrender to ourselves, not because it's just our duty, 
but because he loves us and by his grace, he's calling us to life. My friends, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's calling you to do it today. For some, you've done that in the past, and, and, and as you look at your life, you realize that, yeah, I've done that in general principle, but there's areas of your life that, that you're not in accord with God's will. And you know it. And he's saying, no, are you willing to surrender that area? Are you willing to say, God, I agree with you. I, I want to hate it as much as you hate it. God, I give you the right to change my desires. I agree with you that this is sin. And God, I give you the right, and I ask you that as I learn to die to this, Father, help me, help me to find your life, your blessing, and, and my willingness to let you kill that which needs to be killed. Is he call, calling you to do that today? If he is, I hope in your heart that, you will, that you'll deal with him Accept that invitation before you leave this morning. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.